Welcome to the I Belong Here podcast. Please join us on this journey as we will navigate the world meeting fantastic women who are real scientific role models. Together, we wish to inspire the next generation of girls who dream about being scientists. Look out for our male ambassadors too, as they do believe in the representation women deserve and earn in science. Stay tuned for amazing guests, check out the podcast description for credits and acknowledgements, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of this podcast that includes a guest and today I'm really excited because I'm presenting you one of my dearest friends. She's Dr. Vera Silva. Hey Vera. Hi Noelia, how are you? I'm really good and I'm so excited to have you here. So guys, she's one of my dearest friends. Um, we work together in the UEA in Norwich, UK. Uh, so we have worked together, we share office, we share lab for many, many years. There's many, many stories between us, <laughs> so I'm really excited to have her here, and thanks for accepting as well. Thank you, Noelia, for accepting me, and it's a pleasure to be your first guest and be a part of this really nice initiative that you've started. I'm really proud of you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yay. I'm so excited. Um, so I just want to let the audience know a bit more about you before we start the interview. Uh, yeah, so. Dr. Vera Silva is a research scientist in oncology at MGTX Therapeutics. Her role involves the discovery and the validation of new therapeutic targets for pancreatic cancer adenocarcinoma. This cancer has the worst prognosis rate and there are unmet clinical needs for new therapies. At MGTX, they use a patented new cellular model using human extracellular metrics to drive drug discovery and validation. So, this is so exciting. It sounds super fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, do you want to tell us a bit more about your, your project, uh, perhaps your role in the company, uh, what it's a bit more, what, what you do, because it sounds really excited and also really applied uh, to this cancer that has a really bad prognosis, of course. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, so uh, Ingetix Therapeutics is a, a new, it started as a startup from UCL, London. Uh, we're now based in White City uh, in the old TV studios. Mm. Um, so we have uh, really nice new headquarters and labs. Uh, everyone's very excited about it. We just recently moved. Um, we're about, I don't know, 30, 40 people at the moment working mm. there. Uh, and the oncology department is the more recent one. So the company's been up for about two, two years, if I'm not mistaken now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's grown exponentially. And yeah, the oncology department um, is quite new. So I'm really excited to be part of it, like from zero, from scratch. <laughs> um, and yeah, so uh, NGTEX is known for its uh, cellular models. So what we do is we use human extracellular matrix. Uh, and just to put this in more lay terms, mm -hmm. essentially 
tissue and, and tumors. They, they need support to grow. Mm -hmm. And all the cells and proteins that support them in, in, in the extracellular bit of the cells uh, is what we call the extracellular matrix. And this is very important if we want to um, validate and recapitulate how this actually, how this architecture is kept compared to the human body. Uh, and in order to do that, we take our cellular models a bit beyond just using the plain plastic that people are used to use in the lab. Um, so we have, um, of course, a biobank that we have access to and mm -hmm. we get uh, tissue that uh, we then um, put through a process where we get rid of all the cells, basically, and we are just left with the architect architecture that supports the tumor. Mm. Uh, and we seed this with the cells, and we're actually able to uh, recreate a 3D model that allows us to look for new targets, test drugs that are really, uh, already known to us, chemotherapy drugs that are used in the clinic, or even go further and try testing new uh, mm. drugs or new uh, chemical compounds, for example. Mm. So, um, and as you said, because pancreatic cancer has such a worse prognosis, it's really important to understand it in a more realistic model and try to see if there's anything that we're missing, if there's anything new we can pick up and how to mm. take the therapeutics a bit further. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating to me because I work in tissue engineering <laughs> and what you are doing right now is kind of uh, tissue it engineering, is, yes. if, if that makes any sense. So that's it really is, exciting yes. to me to hear that you do this stuff um, uh, because I know, obviously, because I know you, your work before was based more like uh, applied pharmacology, uh, yes. drug delivery as well. So it's really exciting mm -hmm. that, you know, you come to my side of, <laughs> of no, the no, science. It's a very, very interesting field. And I think mm. it's, it's the future of kind of bridging the gap between what we exactly. see in the lab. And because in vivo models are great, but we know how much uh, failure there is in terms of translation from mice yeah. models, for example, to humans. So it's very important to try to have these tissue engineered cultures yeah. um, that can mimic better the environment we see in, in a human, for example. So Exactly. I think it's really important to have... Um, because like you said, in vivo models are great and uh, we need them, especially to yeah, develop for drugs sure. uh, for invalidate drugs for cancer and other diseases. Um, exactly. But also uh, the translation, right? is really important in between the plastic per se um, to like those um, in vivo models. So I think it's really important uh, what you do. Um, do you get uh, like cells from different patients or uh, do you use like a generic uh, cell line perhaps? Uh, so they're not cell lines. We, we get actual tissue. Tissues, uh, and okay. yes, yeah, yeah, we get actual tissue. Um, and yes, it will be from different patients. So we keep mm -hmm. record of everything. It, it's, it's an actual biobank. So yeah. yeah, well, that's great. That's really important as well, you know, to uh, perhaps... Um, know the background of different patients because like in every cancer there might be some genetic um, implications and stuff so that's that's really nice um, so obviously now you are a research uh, senior research research scientist in in industry right and yeah. one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you to this podcast is because you are obviously smashing what you do at your job um, no. But <laughs> yes, you are. Um, but obviously, you have transition right uh, from like an academic yes. path to an industrial one. And I mm -hmm. also wanted to to showcase this in the podcast uh, 
And I think your testimony is going to be really valid for this because perhaps um, some people, they, they think that academia, so uh, working in academia is more like working in universities, uh, being a group leader, being a lecturer. So some people might think that that's the traditional path to follow, especially after you finish your PhD and your postdocs perhaps so it kind of rolls on into academia but you made this transition and i'm really interesting to to know your your views and your position about that so would you like to tell us a bit more about your journey uh, how you started uh, you know where you're starting uh, obviously i know that you are from portugal so you also move countries to follow your career so all of that is really important uh, not only for the episode but also for the podcast and for showcasing your story as well. So would you like to tell us a bit more about this amazing journey you have done? <laughs> yeah, of, of course I can. So I'll, I'll start from the beginning maybe. Go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I'm Portuguese. I'm originally from Portugal um, and I did all my studies there to, to start with. So um, I have a degree in biochemistry and that was followed by a two-year master's in biochemistry as well. Mm. All done in the same university in Coimbra in Portugal. Very nice city. I do recommend it. <laughs> Has a very, very uh, strong academic uh, mm. spirit. Um, yeah, and it, it's, it, it was a very nice, um, the, the way the biochemistry course is organized, I think it, it really gives us good technical skills and not mm. only, um, and this is something that I think fails sometimes in university teaching in, in terms of science. There's a lot of theory behind it, but sometimes there's not a lot of practical approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I can say that actually Portugal does quite well in that sense. Um, so yeah, so I, I got my degree in biochemistry. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be like that. Initially, I wanted to study medicine. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to be a, a doctor because it's very prestigious in Portugal and mm. um, all the, the good students, and I was a good student, uh, <laughs> went into medicine. Uh, I ended up going into science, um, mm. and I still thought about uh, retaking the exams for medicine in the first year, but um, I started enjoying being in the lab, mm. and I think that's when it started. Um, I really enjoyed pipetting all the basic stuff. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I carried on with my course, uh, four years of bachelor and then two years of master's. And then I did a research associate position for almost an extra year as well, where I worked with bacteriophages still in Portugal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I started thinking about a, a PhD. So it took a while because, um, I don't know, I think I was waiting to have more, uh, experience and maturity, if that makes yeah. sense, uh, for, a, for a PhD. Um, but then eventually I decided, and I've always wanted to have an experience abroad as well. So I thought I'd mm -hmm. take the two, put them together and just start applying for, for PhDs uh, somewhere else that, that wasn't yeah. my country. Um, and yeah, and I got accepted in, in the UEA in Norwich uh, and I did my PhD there, as you already mentioned, in drug delivery. Mm -hmm. um, in cancer. I am, so I never wanted to leave the cancer field. Um, I've always been very driven by it and by yeah. the, mis the mysteries of cancer and how cells can adapt so quickly and just recover and how smart they can be. So I don't know, I've always felt intrigued by the <laughs> whole, I want to beat you kind of thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, so I've always done my studies in, in oncology and yeah, and after my PhD, um, in drug delivery, although I did enjoy the field, I wanted to, to get a bit more experience in other techniques in other um, more kind of biology of cancer. Mm -hmm. So I took a two year postdoc at the Barts Cancer Institute in London uh, with my 
great supervisor, Michelle. She, she, mm -hmm. She's extraordinary. And um, yeah, and I worked in drug resistance in ovarian cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. So Michelle's a clinician. Uh, so she had a, a very kind of uh, good understanding of the unmet need of new drugs for ovarian cancer and how that affects women and the procurement of new treatments was very important, especially because uh, the problem with ovarian cancer is uh, women that do get it eventually develop resistance to the existing chemotherapy and mm -hmm. it, it gets very complicated to treat. Um, so yeah, um, but then at some point, um, I was already thinking about leaving academia. I didn't want to be a PI. I didn't want to keep to the traditional path, as you yeah. mentioned. Uh, and I started thinking and looking into alternative paths. And because I wanted to have my, I, I want to stay in the lab. I like doing research. Um, but I, did, I, I still wanted to be in a place where I could have my own thinking, my own ideas, and still kind of develop um, on research. Yeah. Um, so startup looked like something that would fit with mm -hmm. what I was looking for at the time. And I started applying for jobs and I made the transition into, well, into NGTX. Mm. So, yeah. Um, well, that's an amazing uh, journey. You know, it's, uh, it's obviously, it's driven by cancer uh, in your research and in your lab uh, mm -hmm. progress and so on. But it's, uh, you know, um, I don't know if it happens to you, but when you when you hear it out loud, it makes you realize how far you've come as well, you know, like yes. starting from the beginning, you know, and then achieving now this position in, in industry. It's a fantastic journey. You did a lot of stuff. Uh, obviously, I've been uh, close to you uh, all the time of your PhD, so I know how hard you work, how perseverant you are, and how you fight for what you want. Um, and I was really happy to see this transition of you to industry because... Like I said at the beginning, I think there is um, a misconception that academia is the only path and there is a lot of people who follow the path and then unfortunately they realize later on that they are not made for it. So I think you need to be really sure, especially when you start to mentor people, um, when you have employees and then you need to get the grants and everything becomes a circle. So I think it's, it's not only great that you did this transition, but I also think it's really brave. Um, because I'm not sure, like, I don't see myself, for example, working in industry. I, I love teaching. I love having the contact with my students and, and I want to lead my own group one day, if that mm -hmm. day ever comes. <laughs> so I don't no, no, see the, myself uh, leaving but, industry. But this, is what's, this is what's fantastic about science, isn't it? Because, mm. and I think this is where sometimes the misconception some, uh, comes from. As you said, like, there's still a bit of a stereotype around, oh, if you're in science, you have to, and you have to stick to academia because yes. this is the traditional path. But it really comes down to what people want to achieve with what they do. Exactly. And it's great that people have different paths and they can apply their science in different ways. And it's mm -hmm. great that you, for example, want to have your own group and make your impact in that way, yeah. while me or other people, we feel like we'd be comfortable somewhere else and we're yeah. still doing a good job in that way. So Exactly. And that's what's important at the end of the day, mm. is that you feel good about what you're doing. Yes, I think uh, you also said the word that it's the, the key here, which is um, being comfortable. You know, I think yes. if you don't feel comfortable in your position or with the things that you're doing, everything rolls on. <laughs> you know, yeah, to, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well, exactly. <laughs> everything well. rolls onto the same direction, you know. Um, so I think it's, it's great that... Um, 
And again, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to showcase uh, your story because it's it's great also to, um, one of the aims of this podcast is to uh, inspire the next generation, you know, of scientists. And I also wanted to show stories of, hey, this, pe- this person is not a professor. Uh, they mm-hmm. are not teaching, they are not working in a university, but, you know, they do this amazing research, research like you're doing, it's translational. You work in a company, you're smashing at it, and, and you have, you know, all this productivity and all this, you know, good feeling about what you do. And that's, that's the important yeah, thing, course. that there's no correct path, you know? Yes, I agree. I will there's say, your path, not exactly. correct path. It's exactly. your path. Yeah. I'll say that the incorrect path is the one that you do because someone else is doing it or because I, I, I am here because... It seems right, but I think at mm-hmm. some point you need to ask yourself the question of, do I really want to be here? Do I want to do something else? And there is nothing wrong with transitioning. You know, for example, no. there's a lot of people now that they are transitioning towards um, science communication career, mm-hmm. and they are mm-hmm. scientists. They have PhDs. Uh, they might even have done postdocs before. And I think it's amazing. You know, it's so brave um, that they do these these transitions like you because it's really important uh, for the community as well. You know, to do something that you are actually going to make an impact and and share the stuff. Um, so, yeah. well done to you, honestly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, obviously, that, yeah, that's it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, when people think about a PhD, they really don't think about how it equips you as a person as well, and not only exactly. as a, a scientist or, uh, what, or whatever PhD you did. Uh, it's not only in kind of biological sciences, is it? But in anything, in economy and political science, mm. whatnot, uh, it's how it equips you as a person and how you can use that in mm. so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important. I think, yeah, people grow. It, it takes a lot of resilience. Um, but yeah, you can do so much with what you, if you put your head to it. So exactly. And I also think, um, I think the key point when you do a PhD is after, you know, because a lot of people roll into postdocs because it seems the right thing to do and it fits with, with the type of career and the type of job and the responsibilities perhaps, uh, or even the group. But sometimes it's, it's important, you know, to realize, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave this, this academia world because I need to do something else. Uh, and I, and if this is something that I encourage, um, for example, you, you know, as well, that when we have the undergrad students from the pharmacy degrees, uh, because they are in the final year or towards the final year, a lot of times they ask me, do you think I should do a PhD? Do you think I should stay in the university to do research? And I always tell the same, like take one year, two years, whatever you need to explore what you feel you are good at and to explore what are you, ha- what are you happy at. And that will be the answer. You don't need to do a PhD or a postdoc because you feel it's the right path. Obviously, a PhD opens you doors in terms of academic degrees. Um, yeah, of course. But I think the key point is is after you know to to explore those options. And obviously, you were a postdoc for a couple of years. But I think that period for you was also key to to realize, okay, I oh, want yeah, to do this. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I and I did do a I I did a postdoc because when I did finish my PhD, I also had the idea if I should transition directly into Mm. industry, but I felt like I needed that extra 
yeah. taste of academia exactly. to make the decision. And, and I carried on and it was the right amount of time. I'd said yeah. it, it, well, it, it helped me get my, uh, well, gain more experience and techniques that maybe helped me get the position I am in today, for example. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think, again, it's just, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. You, <laughs> you have to feel comfortable and you have to make the decision that will make you happy and fit with you in the end mm. and not just because as you said somebody told you to do it or yeah. it's what you saw your friend do for example mm. I think what your friends should do is they should give you their input you should talk to people who have different experiences and then mm. make your decision about oh I have this personality I have these ambitions what would be the best fit for me exactly so, where where do you think it was the point in your postdoc that you said, all right, I'm, I'm moving to industry? Was it particularly because of the teaching or university uh, regulations, no, perhaps? Really, or? No, I really, I really enjoy teaching. And um, I, I actually still, well, in a different way, but I still get to do it in the company because yeah. when we get new recruits, of course, mm. we still need to teach people because wherever you move, things are done differently and yeah. you still have to adapt and, and learn new stuff. But... Um, to be honest, although I always had the indecision of should I stay or mm -hmm. should I go? <laughs> <laughs> I like the song. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, of course, my decision was made more quickly, uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID situation as well, because yeah. my, my, my funding as a postdoc got cut shorter than we'd expect. Mm -hmm. But um, it ended up being a positive thing because it really pushed me to actively look for the of jobs course. that I already yeah. wanted to look for. Yeah. So it was one of those things that it started out negative, but it, 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 it was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I get what so, you mean, yeah. Yeah, so honestly, yes, I, I was pushed, unfortunately, because uh, funding got cut. And a lot of people, of course, will, will probably know what I'm talking about. There were a lot of postdocs who had their careers affected by COVID, unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if you can also take something that's not working so well and turn it into something that you want to do and that helps you build your career in a different exactly. way. It's, it's, it's what's important. Would you say that this is a major or a challenge that you experienced in your career? Um, you know, uncertainty with contracts and so on. Obviously, this is something that unfortunately all of us experience in science. You know, you kind of roll contracts um, perhaps with the same group or you finish one to go to another group this is i'll say for me this is a major challenge as well you know the uncertainty yeah. of where are you gonna go especially if you carry family with you it's of not course. easy to move to even if it's in the same country it's not easy to move all of your family's life especially if you have kids you no, know of, of course for sure for sure would you say this is uh, this was a major challenge for you as well? Obviously, it unfortunately happened around the same time as COVID and jobs and academic markets and well, all the markets were basically affected by by COVID. So, would you say this was um, a challenge for you as well? You know, to overcome uh, in the next steps. Of course, it definitely created stress because um, I was expecting to have at least another year left on my contract, and that yeah. would have given me uh, time or yeah more time to process and to mm -hmm. kind of look for positions but uh yeah i'd say it created did create stress but i, I didn't see it so much as a challenge because in the end uh fortunately 
even during COVID times, there were a lot of jobs coming out into industry and, and yeah. science-based jobs in either pharmaceutical companies, startups, etc. You just had to find the right fit for you and, mm. well, considering the job description, etc. Exactly. So in spite of everything we've been living in the past year, I do have to say that science has been doing quite well, mm -hmm. at least from the non-academic point of view. Yeah, um, yeah. I know that academia has been suffering a lot, unfortunately, yeah. especially, and especially here in the UK, because most grants are funded by charities. Exactly. Um, and we know that, that it was a mm -hmm. massive negative yeah. impact on, on charities this year. But um, I have to say that from an industry point of view, it's the right time to look for a job, actually. Exactly. Did you have any, any friends or role models that uh, advised you as well to go to industry? Did you find support somewhere that helped you to make the decision? No, actually. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, valid no, answer. I, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't know anyone actually who was yeah. well I had some friends with the past but I, I didn't really speak to them about their experience yeah. we just hear we just hear the same thing oh it's more of a nine-to-five job that's yeah. a lie um, yes, <laughs> that's a lie especially if you're driven by research it's never going to be a nine-to-five job you always want to do more you want to want to read exactly. more and um, but yeah I only had the kind of little answers that people would tell you but I never got someone to actually explain to me what you do in a company so mm -hmm. it, it was kind of throwing me from the deep end yes uh in a way um and maybe that was the biggest challenge was kind of this yeah. adaptation between academia and how do i yeah stay in industry and kind of survive there with the fast pace and exactly uh, the change in priorities is so fast yeah. compared to academia that you really have to keep up so well so no i didn't really get any advice well, you are a really self-driven person, and I think this—that's why I think I you guess. are really brave. Um, because it takes a lot of courage, you know, to um, to make the step to take these decisions. Because you are doing what is best for you, and you believe in what you and what you're doing, and what you want to do in the future. And then just go for it, you know. Um, <laughs> it, honestly, like I, I know how you know self-driven and motivated you are. So I think that was also key. In, in in doing that decision and the and the transition yeah, it was yes mm -hmm. would you did you have any particular challenges uh, because i work in industry before i did my master uh, project there and that was my first lab experience so i didn't have any academic experiences before and i actually had to adapt the other way around if that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> so i had exactly. to adapt then to an academic club, to an academic environment, a university life, if that makes sense, which is completely different from industry, not only in resources, but also in the pace of the experiments, your objectives, your goals. Mm -hmm. uh, usually in, in academic environments, you work based on the, the, the goals and the milestones from a grant, that it has a limited amount of time. And perhaps depending on the funding, it has a specific tasks that you need to achieve mm -hmm. and inform the funders, uh, perhaps do reports and everything. Um, obviously in resources, it's completely different uh, and this is how it goes. Uh, so how did you experience that? Did you have any particular challenges perhaps in the lab life, um, the way experiments are done or milestones are achieved uh, or schedules as well uh, compared to an academic environment because this is also different in between both worlds. 
Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I guess from a, an academic point of view, you do have very strict deadlines if you're applying for a grant mm -hmm. or if you have a very high impact paper that is due for a rebuttal or something like that. Uh, but in general, in academia, although you do have pressure, the deadlines can be stretched a bit, Yeah. especially as a PhD or a postdoc in yeah. terms of experiments and hypotheses, at the, et cetera. In industry, that's not the case. Hmm. Um, you often um, are working with collaborations or partnerships, et cetera, yeah. and you have quite strict deadlines. And every day you have to plan your experiments and things have to get done by a specific time. Yeah. Um, also, although it's very research driven and idea driven, we don't um, we don't explore as much as academia. We have a very mm -hmm. focused objective. Yeah. It, it, I'm going to give an example. For example, if, if you're looking into a hypothesis that involves a cellular pathway, for example, in academia, yeah. you have the space to read 50,000 papers and test what, mm -hmm. oh, this is exciting. I'm going to tr try this <laughs> and try to validate this. In, in industry, you can't forget what yeah. you're trying to prove. Exactly. And you have to be very focused and kind of get out of your head and get out of the main picture, but focus mm. on that specific task. Yes. So I think this... This is, and this is something I'm still adapting to this kind of keep, keep focused. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, um, it's something that, uh, it's also an opportunity, you know, to, to see what you care about. You know, when, when I was mm -hmm. in, in industry, we did pharmacology. It was pure pharmacology. We have a drug. We need to see what's the, the target, what cell lines it's going to affect. Uh, it was, um, cancer so you need to see basically if the, is this drug killing the cancer cells yeah. no we don't care why uh, exactly. we need to the, move on the, because there is money the behind no decision it. is much quicker yes, yes. exactly whereas and, and when i was doing those experiments it was great when the drug was killing the cells that i was handling but when it was not killing them i was like wow why this is not happening i want to know so, why in academia, you would explore that in industry exactly. is this doesn't work. We don't want this. Exactly. This is why I am staying in academia as well, because I, I really want to keep, you know, that curiosity and, and exploring. And also, well, I have a, a huge interest in, in interesting in teaching. So everything sums up, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you um, did you have any any role models to help you to do these things, such as scientific role models, uh, women role models in science, you know, across all this uh, trajectory that you have been explaining to us so far? Uh, very recently, I became a big fan of Marie Curie for some reason. <laughs> uh, and I did mention her in Women's International Day and everything. I don't know. I yeah. saw the documentary about her life. And I think mm. she, she suffered so much bullying as a woman. And uh -huh. because her husband was who he was, uh, mm. she had double the challenges she had to compete with her own husband basically exactly. uh, but she loved him very much so she had this kind mm. of personal professional conflict that I found very intriguing and mm. well uh, Pierre passed away uh, be before she became a professor so um, I find her life very fascinating and also because um, I don't know if many people know this but the Marie Curie family has at least three or four Nobel prizes because her mm. children uh, also won a Nobel continuing her radiotherapy uh, oh studies. I didn't know that yes yes so um, I, I find it fascinating how she inspired her own children to, to pursue yeah. science as well uh, so yeah she, she's she, she's been quite a, a role model of mine uh, recently but when I was younger uh, I, I didn't 
my family's not scientific at all. My parents' background is far from science. Uh, so I didn't really grow up um, surrounded by, I don't know, surrounded by science and by yeah. ambitious uh, kind of driving myself into that field. It, mm -hmm. it was mostly because I wanted to. Um, but I've always had very hardworking people around yeah. me and very driven people and honest working people. So I think that's built me as a person. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'd say that my role models involve more kind of hard work and perseverance, mm. resilience rather than science itself. Of course, yeah. But that's really important as well because, you know, I, I also don't come from a scientific background family. They are completely away from it. They don't understand when I speak about my work and they will never, never do. It's my family, <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, it's it's so important as well to to surround yourself by people that even if they don't understand what you do, they, they support you. They still support and, you, exactly. And they have the, you know, like the same values of you know hardworking, uh persistence perseverance because that's like you said they, they shape you as well yeah yeah so that's that's really inspiring to to continue especially when you have those particular points in your career um i mean just to let the audience as an example whenever i have like a difficult decision the first person that i text is you <laughs> you know <laughs> this <laughs> is true it is true like when i have a difficult decision or when i'm like doubting in between things i'm like oh i need to text Vera. she's gonna know the answer <laughs> she's gonna tell me what she thinks is best for me and that shapes me you know i still go with with my own you know gut instinct no, of course um, but and it's always nice to have that support exactly because you know you 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 shape each other as well uh, we talk about as well when you decided to do this transition we talk about over the phone whenever we can um so it's 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 amazing that to have these these models you know around you um yeah and they're very important so having mm -hmm. a support support system is essential exactly i i'm learning so much from from you even more than i i did on the past <laughs> you know uh, so far in this interview um but i want to one back i want to go back to one of the points that you were mentioning when you were uh, explaining about your fascination by marie curie uh life um <laughs> Obviously, she she was uh, it was in another time. Uh, times mm -hmm. have evolved since since she was alive, but yes, she the I think the bias that she experienced as a woman and as a scientist working uh, and as a woman working in science, she experienced this bias that I think they are still carried on uh, nowadays. Which it makes me real upset. But well, um, yeah. we need to keep fighting and keep working on it. You know. So, will you? Would you like to talk about a, a bit with us, you know, about the whole woman in STEM movement, the incorporation of women in science jobs? Uh, what do you think about the whole scenario? And perhaps what do you think is this key points that you think we need to address uh, or to continue uh, working mm -hmm. on them? I, well, th that's a great question, Wally, and, and I think it's kind of the, it's everything that this podcast is about, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, yeah, so... Again, Marie Curie, I'd, uh, again, I'm going to mention something maybe most people don't know. She wasn't even allowed to give her speech in oh, Sweden wow. for the Nobel Prize because she was a woman. Wow. So 
definitely times have evolved. Women mm -hmm. are allowed to speak in public events um, about their science, which is great. And we're, I think, yeah, we're doing really good. And we, we can feel in the last five years or so, I say that we've, we've evolved tremendously yeah. in terms of changing minds and changing the way women are perceived in science and our mm -hmm. capabilities as leaders as well. Um, however, um, so something that I, I think I'd like to address because I don't know, it, it comes in context with, with something I've been thinking about recently. Like, um, I think more and more, there's a lot of male ambassadors as well for women in STEM. Yes. But what people don't address sometimes is, I think uh, women still don't support enough women in yeah. science. And, uh, in, and when I say science, I say in, in the world, essentially. I agree. Yeah. There's still a lot of women that don't support women. Uh, and I say this, especially because, for example, a couple of weeks ago in my in my workplace, I heard some colleagues of mine who are women talking how women still look at each other in the workplace about what their hair looks like, what, how they dress, yes, if they have their nails painted. And it's little things that can really hurt your confidence as a person and as a scientist. Yeah. And I think nowadays it doesn't matter what you look like if you're doing a good job this is what matters and women are still perceived as this i think mm -hmm. the way we look still makes a big impact and yeah, the fact does, that yeah. women are still talking about this is mm. wrong yes we, we, sh we shouldn't be talking about this and when i heard this conversation i thought to myself okay there's still a lot of work to be done because women yeah. are still talking about how they don't support each other enough yeah um and i think Although there's a lot of talk about women in STEM, this is something that's not talking about very often. Yeah. Do you think, because um, obviously the, the way a woman looks is way more judged than the way a man looks. Oh, for sure. Yes, for sure. So yes. if a man, and I see this a lot right now, you know, in the social media era, in Instagram and things like yeah. that. Like mm -hmm. if a man looks a bit like, how do I say this? <laughs> like, I don't know, like the hair is messy or it, it has matter. a really big beard, for example. It <laughs> looks at as a nice thing, you know, or you are like hipster <laughs> for yes, starters. Exactly. But yeah. if you have a messy hair day as a woman, that gets targeted, you know? And I, I know this seems quite I don't know, superficial or cliche, but I just brought this up because, it, again, it still shows how much we still have to put that extra effort in exactly. to be seen as professionals. Effort, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, and again, it just, if a colleague is talking about you in terms of what you look like in the lab, you're not being respected just no. because you're the scientist. No, no, um, no. And this happens very often. And, um, and, yeah, and the lack of support between women is still something that needs to be, it needs to be worked on. And yes. um, I think now in my company is the first time I've actually worked with a large group of men that mm. are in uh, leadership positions. I've always worked for women, actually. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. I've actually almost always worked for women during yeah, my you career. Have, yeah. And I've had really good experiences, but I've also had very bad experiences. Mm. And it all comes down to this lack of support that, yeah women enter this competition because there's not enough room for us and instead mm. of helping your fellow colleague there's still that sense of oh she can take my position or she can be better exactly. than me and and this is something that has to stop because there should be space for everyone so yeah i think it's um 
it's awful, you know, to experience um, that sense of competition because there is mm -hmm. healthy competition and then yes. there is toxic competition. Uh, exactly. It's they are completely different and they have completely different effects in someone. Um, yeah. So, and it reshape and it reshapes the way you feel science and the way well, you work in science. Totally, it can it can totally change you as well your day to day, mm -hmm. and it's 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 awful experiences to be honest. Um, because when and it's true, you you often as a woman you feel that competition coming from another woman, and mm -hmm. it directly goes to be toxic. You know, like yes. they are not Obviously, there are exceptions uh, when we work in the lab together. For example, both of us. We had well, we had no competition. It was all healthy. No, of course. You know? And there's a lot of healthy relationships between yes. women. But uh, again, I think sometimes people do mention a lot the competition between men and women and the mm. gender bias. Uh, exactly. But there's also a gender bias in just being women. Yes. Amongst women. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. um, this is also because of um, society expectations. Mm -hmm. um, they go into a bad loop you know between us and the society yes, because like you were still... saying before we are expected to be pretty to be always tidy uh to speak well to look well uh to do everything perfect but then you get judged as a professional also because of the way you look or mm -hmm. the way you speak or your achievements um i think it's it's part of uh, because of the society expectations that we have uh, as women you know we are expected to look nice to look pretty um and perhaps this um you know it gets on us so we that goes do you think we also project that to others unconsciously sometimes obviously yeah i think so i think sometimes we do Hmm. I think then that goes, um, you know, the loop in between us and, and the society expectations. Uh, so I agree with you. I think we still need to do a lot of work, not only to support uh, women in science uh, per se, but also to, to support our uh, female uh, colleagues. I think one of the key things, you know, is to stay together, uh, to, to fight no. together. Yeah, of course, of course. And we need to overcome this and we need to, I don't know, we need... Uh, and this is also a, a topic that's very important. I mean, uh, bullying in science is a very strong topic as well no nowadays. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not a, just about gender. It's about people. And um, there's a lot of women who are highlighted as women ambassadors and as women in positions of power. But then when you read more into how they manage their groups and everything, there's a lot of dark stories there. And yeah. This, this is not okay, because if you're a woman ambassador, you shouldn't be treating the people that work with you uh, badly. And exactly. I think these things are not taken seriously enough still in, in academia yeah. and in, in the world. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, no, I completely agree with you. I think this needs to be taken uh, seriously as well. And I think part of the progress, it's going to be when we also forget about these, these society expectations. Because um, I think sometimes as women, we forget how much pressure it's on us because it's just part yeah. of our day. Uh, mm -hmm. So we just live with it, but that doesn't and, mean that is yeah. right. No, no, exactly. And this is what's wrong is that we, well, society has grown up with this kind of mentality that women are women, men are men, and um, this needs to change. And I think we're on the right track, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Exactly. Um, so just, you know, taking all this information and then going to 
wrap up this uh, amazing first episode of this podcast with a <laughs> guest. Uh, Thank you. Um, what will uh, what would you say to the next generation of uh, scientists to inspire them? Or if you have, if you had, you know, a group of little girls that they are thinking oh. about being scientists in front of you, what would you tell them? That's a big responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell them uh, to inspire I them? Guess, I guess I have two things that I'd like to okay. say, actually. So I'd like to say about a piece of advice I was given by someone who's very dear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm still working on myself, by the way, Mm because it takes time. But uh, there was a person who told me once that we are given a space in this world, just Mm -hmm. physical space. I'm not even talking about voice and opinions, just physical space. And regardless of who you are, occupy that space in the way that makes you happy and the way that makes you feel like you are a person and that you have respect and that you're loved. So take your space and occupy that space, make the most of it. And Mm -hmm. this is really important. And something that has been very, I don't know, intriguing to me was last year, (laughs) (laughs) there was someone who said that if you could do anything in this world, you choose to be kind. And I guess that's the other note I would like to say. So just occupy your space and don't forget to be kind to others. Well, that's... um... That's an amazing uh, advice, to be honest, for the next generation. And I'm pretty sure that you will uh, inspire them. And if they hear you, they are going to to feel inspired by by your advices. And I think it's really important, you know, to it, it, and it's true to occupy that space, you know, and just make the most of it. Which it kind of it kind of links with what we were saying at the beginning of the interview, you know, to do what you like to do, uh, yeah. you know, on my. Twitter bio, I have a small sentence to say, love what you do or leave. Yes. Because it's, uh, you know, it sounds like a cliche, you know, do something you love and you will never work again or things like that. Kind of inspirational (laughs) uh, quotes, but it has more, it it has uh, like a deep uh, significance behind it. So amazing advices. Um, I've learned like I said, I've learned even more from you from this interview than I knew before because I knew you for ages already and I always learn from you something new. You always teach me something new. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm so happy that you are the Especially first Especially history. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm terrible. Just so people know, people who don't know me, I'm terrible in history and historical facts and wars and, I don't know, people that conquer other territories. <laughs> just don't know anything about them I forgot about them and Vera always kindly teaches me something new like yes always so I even you know our bus drives to the university they were not only bus drives to work I was learning history (laughs) yes you were that's true happy to contribute oh yes always 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 teaching me something honestly this this woman is amazing uh and I hope you guys learn as much as I, I have been learning from her all these years that we've been friends. Um, so thank you, Vera, again, for being here. Uh, thank you, Noelia, for having me. And it was a pleasure. And yeah. yeah, I'm super proud of this podcast. And I hope you get the, well, success you deserve with it. <laughs> thank you so much, Vera, again, thank you. And uh, I hope you guys liked the interview. And this was our first episode, but so much more is coming on the next upcoming month. So just stay tuned. Bye, Veda. Bye, thank you, Noelia.
Cause I know I gotta have it These eyes ain't too intelligent So I get it, that is what's an outside of the manager The 21 not savage, yeah I don't understand it, and you talking, feeling magic and